0: Hey everyone, I'm Renee Bennett. Consider me the girl next door. Having conversations that will help challenge and shape your worldview in a culture that has turned our moral compass upside down and inside out. To chat with me further, come join me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. No topics are off limits. I'm really glad you're here. Now, on to today's episode. Hello everyone. How are you doing? It's Friday, so you've got to be doing good, right? Am I right? Fridays are good days. Welcome to Parenthood. Thank you so much for stopping by. Today I promised that I would do part two from last week of answering your questions uh, because so so many of you sent questions the other week and so I've kind of split it into two. And so I'm going to answer the rest of your questions today. Um, So like I said last week, Um, It's a bit like lucky dip. You never know what's going to come out of my mouth. (laughs) You never know what you might get from it that you thought, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that I needed to know that. Excellent. File that one away. So I hope you have a lucky dip moment. Um, So the first question that I want to answer is someone sent along, why does separation anxiety between a baby, toddler, child and parent happen? And how do we fix it? Now, great question. And I'm actually glad that this person split the question into two. Why does it happen and how do you fix it? Because the root cause does determine how you deal with it. Now, I'm not an expert in this area, but I will answer according to my experience, my memories from being a child, as well as being a parent, but also from being a teacher as well. So, um, but I'm not an expert. So this is just, you know, I just wanted to caveat that. Now, so I think too, that baby separation anxiety is a little bit different than when they get older. I was super routined with my babies and I think because I was their primary caregiver, like literally 98% of the time, I did find that all three of mine were a little bit anxious when I would give them to someone else. But what helped me was I had a particular friend, I actually had more than one, but one in particular who was also a mum with kids a bit older than mine. And she really helped push me in this area because you know what it's like when your child is showing signs of distress, like we can tend to want to kind of, you know, coddle them and, you know, kind of give in to them. And we find it hard because it pulls at our heartstrings. But she would be very firm with me, my friend, and she would say, hey, you need a break. Liam, for example, will be fine with me. So go. And her confidence pushed me, which was a really good thing. So for some of you, you might need a good friend. But anyway, let's talk about as they get a little bit older It does depend on the reason. Now, these are a few reasons that I could think of. Firstly, it could just be their personality. You know, different kids are more naturally anxious than others and they don't like change. I was one of those kids. I was very anxious. Maybe, and I do think it was just my personality, not just the fact that my parents divorced. But, you know, here's me, an anxious, kind of shy, little girl who from the age of five, I was put on an airplane to fly between states so that my dad, I could spend the holidays with my dad. So for my personality, I hated that. I just, it made my anxiety even worse, but I had no choice at all. It was like a court order. So it could, so that's the first reason it could be their personality the second reason they could be anxious is because of circumstances, you know, like there could be some sort of trauma that they've experienced, um, could be like me again, parents maybe have separated. So that circumstance made me anxious, or it could be that one of the parents is like really sick and leaving and going to hospital all the time, that kind of thing. Um, or as was the case for my own kids, we moved States and took them away from every person that they knew, including family. So that's my second reason is circumstance. My third reason is sometimes we can be anxious, the parent, either the mum or dad, we can be anxious. And then the child picks up on that. So I would say they're my top three reasons. Okay. So personality, circumstances, or perhaps they're picking up on a parent's anxiety, but whatever the reason is, I do think it's healthy to help our child move through those feelings. We do need to help. It's going to be to their best benefit if we help them build resilience. But I think we need to do that in small steps, depending on the child. So for example, leaving them for a short while with a confident person, like I was talking about before with my friend who will take charge both for you and your child. That can really help. Or if that is too much do even a smaller step than that, like go to a friend's place, but don't let your child stick by you climbing all over your lap the whole time. Encourage them to play away from you so that you're there, but get them to like play in another room or play outside. So they build that confidence just a little bit at a time because they know that you're there, but they're they're still able to have some time by themselves. Um, Sometimes this anxiety can present when they go to school. And in that case, again, you've got no choice. You have to leave them. And so the best thing for you to do is show trust in their teacher because that will really help them. And teachers are excellent at dealing with separation anxiety. So what I would say is don't give in to their anxiety um, you know, by you know, sticking around in the classroom for ages, or you know, even, even worse, by giving in by Taking them home and not making them push through because I can guarantee once you've gone, they're going to forget about it because they get busy in, and involved playing and doing whatever they're doing. So, yeah, so basically, I would just say whatever tact you, you use, if you do have a child with separation anxiety, do try and build resilience by stretching them to have, you know, more and more time um, or experiences where they are away from you. That will definitely help them, but just go at your own pace. As long as you're going at a pace, just go at your own pace. If there's prolonged concern, by the way though, and you think it's something more, I would encourage you to go along and see a counselor, even if just you go and speak to them and get some, you know, professional advice. Okay, that's that one. Number 2. Oh, this is a good one. Guys, you're going to laugh at my answer to this one. Okay. How do you stop siblings from hitting one another? without actually smacking them. <laughs> now, that made me laugh because that's so true. It's like, I'm going to hit you to teach you not to hit. That's like a little bit of an, you know, hypocritical thing to do. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about sibling fighting. All right. First of all, guys, it's normal. It's going to happen. Siblings are going to fight. So just remember that. Um, I was probably surprised at how much my kids did used to fight. I think, oh my goodness, I thought I was teaching my kids better than this. It literally used to drive Cameron and I nuts having our kids fight together. I'd be like, why are they fighting? Like we disciplined them so much in other areas. Like, why is this not paying off? Now we tried a few different things. I'm not sure that we felt like we got anywhere at the time but can I just say in hindsight, our three pretty much mostly get along really well. Our boys still fight a bit, but maybe that's because like, I don't know, it's a boy rivalry thing and they're like 15 and 18. So to be honest, at that age, they literally just wrestle it out and I get out of the way. I'm like, as long as you don't ruin my furniture or anything in my house, go for it. Okay. So how did we deal though when they were younger? Well, firstly, we had a rule of no dobbing I could not stand dobbing. Cameron and I would literally be like driven nuts. So we had a rule, no, you're not allowed to dob. So we threatened if they dobbed, we would say to them, either you go work it out yourself or we will work it out for you. And believe me, if we are the ones working it out, neither of you are going to like it. That threat seemed to work (laughs) really well. So we tended to try and stay out of it a bit. Now, if there really was an ongoing problem, often one of them would come to us later calmly and be like, mom, this is really getting beyond a joke. And then if we thought it was warranted, we would then go chat to the other child separately, individually. You know, like, do you realize that you're making your brother feel really, um, you know, I don't know, discouraged or, you know, that kind of thing. So we would have a chat with them. Now, this is the one you're going to laugh at, guys. I am not sure if this is good parenting or not, and I'm going to blame Cameron for this one, but if one of our kids hit or hurt the other one and it was just like out of nowhere and completely unwarranted, Cameron used to, (laughs) I can't even say this. This is so funny. Cameron used to say the child who got hit or hurt now got a free strike. Now this was clearly a dad thing. And he used this with the boys. He never used this with Georgia like, Oh, but Georgia was not a hitter. I don't think Georgia ever hit. I can't remember them hitting her, hitting the boys. It was always the boys that would hit one another. And so if there was just like this full out, like one punch the other, and it was just like, what the heck did you do that for? Cameron would literally hold the one that did it and go, okay, Liam free strike. And I would be mortified. I don't know. Is that a boy fix? but that's what he would do. And, um, it seemed to work. You guys are probably like, Renee, I esteemed you as this great parent. No longer you've fallen off the pedal pedals. No, what do you call it? Pedal stool. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's why I'm blaming Cameron for that one. Another thing we would do was we would say things like fighting was unacceptable. We said that one a lot where we'd be like, dad and I do not carry on and fight like you guys. So it's not acceptable for you either. And the last thing you can do is, teach them to show care to one another, like just as a general rule of thumb. So have them do kind things for one another, because that tends to kind of lessen the fighting. So, you know, we would say things like, if you put a piece of toast in, ask your brother and sister if they would like a piece of toast. If you're getting yourself a drink, ask your brother and sister if they would like a drink. So we were teaching them to care for one another or we would celebrate each other in special ways like when you know Ashton graduated from year six and then hey guys let's celebrate Ashton and let's all go out for dinner. Okay so next question um, and this one will probably take us to the end of the podcast because I've got a few things to say about this one because it's really important but I had a few questions around spiritually leading your kids. Uh, there was a particular question from someone who is a first-generation Christian wanting to know how they can raise their child to love Jesus? Great question. I could take a whole podcast um, just on this because this is such an important part, I know, for me. Can you guys hear that plane? Oh, my goodness. I don't know if you can hear that plane going over my house, but it's really loud. Um, So I'll do a briefer version today, but I feel like this definitely warrants a whole topic on its own. Like, you know, how do you raise kids to end up um, valuing um, the things that you value, valuing God and a relationship with God the way that you do. Um, But there are so many ways that, so many things that I think we did intentionally when it came to spiritually leading our kids. So um, I think I've got about like six or so things on this thing. This, So I'll, I'll go through them pretty quick, but number one, lead by example. So love Jesus yourself. You know, talk about him. Talk about the Bible to show your passion. Let them see you read the Bible. Let them see you, you know, sitting down and just closing your eyes quietly and praying, or let them see you doing your devotions. You know, let them see you loving God in your daily life. That's really important. Number two, make going to church a habit of your household. What is it with people making church a once a month option? I just don't get this. It is such a dearly held value of Cameron's and mine um, that going to church weekly was something that we all do as a family and always have done. I cannot tell you the number of families I see who don't make church a habit. Sport comes first. Sleeping in comes first. Going to the beach or having a fun recreation day comes first. And then guess what? Guess who they come to when they've got rebellious teenagers and they want us to fix it? I'm like, well, no, like you kind of should have started about 10 years ago. (laughs) So make it a value of your family. We go to church on Sundays, guys. That's what we do. Number three, um, help them establish their own relationship with God by doing devotions with them every day. So this would be a huge part of what Cameron and I did with our kids. And Cameron would tell you to this day that I was better at this than what he was. And that's fine. If one of you, you know, in your relationship is better at doing this than the than the other, then you take the responsibility for that. So I took responsibility for this. Cameron was definitely like the spiritual leader of our house. But when it came to helping them establish their daily relationship with God, I did this with them all the way up until they're about 13. Once they hit the teenage years, I um I would go and get them like a, their own special Bible or devotion book. And I still do. I still like even the other week I went to Kurong and I, I bought Liam a Bear Grylls devotion book. So I still kind of encourage them in it. But until they're about 13, I did it with them every single day from. From birth. from birth, it was just a prayer and a song. But as they got older, we established a, re- a routine around their bedtime where every night I would read a Bible story. Sorry, I'm just getting comfortable. Um, and I would pray with them every single night. I very rarely missed a night. Uh, I would choose books that suits their personality. So um, Georgia always liked storybooks. The boys really liked the manga comic style Bibles and the action Bible. Um, And I did this individually, by the way, if we were kind of in a hurry or it was a late night, Cameron would say, okay, family prayer, family devotion. But generally I did this with them each individually every single night. Was this a sacrifice? Well, yes, but I saw it more as an investment into their future. And in my mind, it's paid off because all three of my kids, 15, nearly 16, 18 and 20, all love God and serve God and have their own relationship, which is amazing. Number four, you're going to think this is another funny one. I'm giving you a few giggles today, but anyone that's been to my house will attest to this. I put scriptures on the back of the toilet door. I think I did this because my mom had a friend when I was growing up and she actually, her entire back of her toilet door, she wrote scriptures on the door in texter, like really nice handwriting and and sayings as well. I Remember, there was a saying on there about I don't know something like going to church doesn't make you any more of a Christian than a, than it does being a horse living in a barn or something. But anyway, anyway, besides the point, she had her door from top to bottom full of scriptures, and then she like varnished it over the top. So that was there for years and years, and I loved that. I didn't write them on the door. I typed them out and blue tacked them on because. Everyone goes to the toilet and has to sit there, and they might as well look at something life-giving. And the Word of God is alive and it's powerful. So I thought, well, what better than to put scriptures on the back of the door? Um, make them simple and easy to remember ones. So that's a big thing that I just to this day I love doing for my kids because that leads me to number 5 which i probably wish i did better teach them memory verses i did turn a few psalms into like action songs to help them remember like psalm 23 i remember doing that one i wish i had done more memory verses i wish that our kids church growing up did more memory verses um, because that's how i learned a lot of scripture as kids but yeah if you can teach the memory verses i wish i did that better number 6 make them go to youth as soon as they're in your 8 so in our, in our household, year seven, you had a choice, but by year eight, you're going. You're going to youth. And that helps to establish friendships with other kids that have the same values. It also means you put youth leaders in their life that if they're doing their job correctly, will enforce the beliefs and values that you want them to have. But it's not just you enforcing them. It's this cool like 18-year-old youth leader. So that's powerful. And last of all, position them in places where they can encounter God. I remember Russell teaching us this one, but position your kids, particularly when they hit their teenage years, in spaces where you know that they will encounter God. So that would be places like youth camp or a a conference, like a Youth Alive conference. Um, I know that it's expensive when you've got three kids to pay for school fees and school camps and then a youth camp. But I'm telling you, even though it was expensive, it was just like a non-negotiable in our household that I would find the money or fundraise the money to get my kids to camp because I wanted them in a place where they would encounter God, because when they encounter God, they never forget it. And that helps to see them through. Um, So I'll just finish with this story. Um, Shani, who is our youth pastor now, and also who works with me at Youth Alive, both uh, at the academy Um, and and within Queensland and national as well, she's got a wonderful mum and dad. And she tells me to this day, her mum made her go to Youth Alive conference when it was on the Sunshine Coast, and she lived in Ipswich, and she did not want to go. And her mum put her on the bus and said, you're going, you've got no choice. And she reckons that when the bus left, she was looking out the window, glaring at her mum, like, I hate you, mum. But you know what? it was at that Youth Alive conference that she encountered God. She rededicated her life, had an encounter with God. And, you know, that was when I'm, I'm, oh, I think she was about maybe 13 or 14, maybe 14 or 15 at the time. But you know what? That encounter changed her life. And here she is now, our youth pastor and uh, and working for us at Youth Alive. So that's just one powerful example. Um, Cameron and I meet people all the time who tell us that they got saved at Youth Alive. So get your kids along to those kinds of things because it's really powerful. And guys, we have hit 20 minutes almost in 20 seconds. So there you go. There are three more questions answered for you today. I hope that you got a little bit of gold. I hope that there was some amazing little thing in your lucky dip that you didn't know that you wanted. But now that you've got it, you're like, yes, thank you for that. Um, And then I don't know what topic I'm going to do next week. I'll have to have a think about it. But if you have any ideas, please make sure, as per usual, come along to my social media girlnextdoor.podcast and send me a message there because I love chatting with you. Anyway, until then, guys, have the most wonderful week and I will be back with you. You've got to come next Wednesday. I've got a discussion that I'm going to do with Isaiah Simmons on a really hot topic that you will not want to miss. So come along to that. I'll see you there. Bye.